Welcome to another Salvation by Grace midweek message. Salvation by Grace is the teaching ministry of Grace Christian Assembly, a Sovereign Grace Fellowship in Smyrna, Tennessee. You'll find us on the internet at salvationbygrace.org. We are currently studying the book of Psalms. So grab your Bible and join the congregation of GCA, along with our teaching pastor, Jim McClarty. Tonight we are going to try to finish the second book of the book of Psalms, and that will mean that we'll have to cover Psalm 71 and 72, and then we will decide in uh, the coming week whether we will be picking up at book three or whether we're going to spend some time in the book of Jeremiah, which I threatened to do at the end of book one. So I'm going to dangle that same threat out there, and we will see what will happen. I relate to Psalm 71 because it is David writing from the perspective of an old man. I know. Actually, if you go read commentaries, you'll see people debating whether Psalm 71 was written by David because it doesn't have a superscription on it saying who the writer was. But what is interesting about Psalm 71 is not only the several references to God being faithful to him in his old age, but there are just so many lines that you're going to recognize because you've heard them in so many of David's preceding psalms. And even the fact that he says, I'm going to praise you on my harp and on the lyre, it's pretty obvious that it's David who is writing this. And the perspective of the psalm is the perspective of a man who has now lived through a lifetime of trouble and difficulty, and God keeps delivering him. I think Paul in Romans 5 really sort of sums up the attitude that we're going to see here in Psalm 71. So turn to Romans 5 for just a moment, and we're just going to read the first like five verses perhaps six. We'll probably read the whole book of Romans. But <laughs> Romans 5, we'll just start at verse 1. Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom also we have obtained our introduction by faith into this grace in which we stand. And we exult in hope of the glory of God. And not only this, but we also exult in our tribulations. Okay, so in what way can Paul say we exult, we lift up, we celebrate our difficulties in life, the tribulum, the problems of life? Why can he say that we exult in our tribulations? It's because what the tribulations Produce. So he says, we know that tribulation brings about perseverance. It brings about endurance. And anybody who can look back over the course of their life would have to admit that that's true. If you are trusting God through the problems of this life, it builds a certain 
endurance into you where when the next problem comes along, you assume you're going to get through that too because after all, you got through the previous ones. God took you through those previous problems. He's probably not going to let you down this time. It might be difficult. There might be actual tribulum to be had, and yet you will get through it, and that produces a kind of perseverance in you. And then in verse 4, Paul writes, and that perseverance results in proven character. In other words, it's a kind of tridness is the word in the Greek. It's the same word as trying metal. You wouldn't go into battle with a sword that you hadn't tested the metal, that you knew that it was going to hold up in the heat of battle. That's that same word, this kind of tridness. So the difficulties, the tribulations of life, produce a perseverance in you, and that sense of perseverance creates a character in you, an attitude in you that I would say is part of the Christian worldview where you're enduring the difficulties of this life, confident that God is going to get you through it, and that produces a tridness in your character where you're trusting God despite the difficulties. And that proven character produces hope. We've talked about that word before here, el peace, which means a confident expectation of something that you know is actually coming. It's not like our concept in modern America of hope, where we hope something's going to be, hope it's going to happen, hope when we wake up on Christmas morning that we get a bike. We don't know. We might, we might not, but we hope. That's not the Greek word. You can see that it has that same root as pistis, which is faith. It is a confidence in what God has already said Knowing that God is going to do what he said he's going to do, it hasn't happened yet, and yet you're confidently looking forward to it. That's that word hope. But you don't start at hope. Hope is the result of the tribulations of life that bring about your perseverance through these troubles, which brings about a proven character within you, and that produces confidence that God is going to get you through this one the same way he got you through the previous ones. That perseverance brings about proven character. Proven character brings about hope, and hope does not disappoint, says the NASB. The King James says, hope maketh not ashamed. Because the love of God has been poured out in our hearts through the Holy Spirit who was given to us. And so hoping in God, trusting in God, confidence in God does not lead to disappointment, does not lead to shame. And how are you going to reach that point of contentment in trouble, that peace that passes understanding? How are you going to reach the point where you know as you go through the difficulties of this life that you're going to get through them, that you're going to persevere through them? How do you get that kind of hope? Well, it's the tribulations that ultimately produce that kind of hope, and that hope and confidence in God never shames anybody because God is faithful and he takes care of his people. That's the attitude that is presented to us in Psalm 71. David looking back over his life. He's an old man who still 
in a great deal of difficulty. This may be written during the time when Absalom is still rebelling against him. He cries out in pain. He cries out for God's help. And in the same breath says confidently, and you're going to take care of me. (laughs) And you're my rock. You're my fortress. I'm going to be all right. So God deliver me because you are my deliverer. So it's a great attitude that David has that he has learned through the course of his life where he can say confidently, even in the midst of the troubles and the difficulties of his life, he can say confidently, God preserve me, God save me, God take care of me, knowing full well that God is going to take him through it because he's going to say, from the time I was young, from the time I was born, I have always been preserved by you. So now that I am an old man going through these difficulties, I don't believe you're going to abandon me now. Instead, I have confidence because of everything I've already endured. And that's actually a great attitude to have, that only people who have lived long enough to go through all the tribulations and difficulties of life and who have seen God's deliverance time and time again They're the only people who ever kind of get to that. You're not born with it. Kids at five, six years old don't wake up one day and have that attitude. You have to endure some stuff to have that attitude. All right, so let's start reading. Psalm 71, verse 1. In thee, O Yahweh, I have taken refuge. Let me not be ashamed. In thy righteousness, deliver me and rescue me. Incline or lay low your ear to me and preserve me, save me. Be thou to me a rock of habitation or the rock where I live, the protection around me all the time to which I may continually come. Thou hast given commandment. To save me. For thou art my rock and my fortress. So look in those three verses where David went. He went from, You are my refuge, deliver me, rescue me, save me, very quickly to, and you've given a commandment to save me because you are my rock and you are my fortress. So he is crying to God for deliverance while at the same time having confidence in God that he is going to protect him, is going to deliver him, is going to save him. Verse 4, rescue me, O my God, out of the hand of the wicked, out of the grasp of the wrongdoers and the ruthless man, the man who has no scruples, no conscience. The sinners of this world deliver me because they're out to get me. And yet, as part of that same thought, verse 5, he says, For thou art my hope. Where did he get that hope? Paul already told us. He got it through the tribulations he had already endured, which created that character in him where he believed that he was going to be preserved, he was going to endure And as a consequence, he can say, even in the midst of trouble, you're my rock, you're my fortress. 
Get me out of the grasp of wrongdoers and ruthless men. Save me from the wicked people who are out to get me because you are what I'm hoping and what I'm confident in. For thou art my hope, O Lord God. Thou art my confidence from my youth. So there it is. I've learned this through the course of this life from my youth all the way till now. By thee I have been sustained from my birth. Thou art he who took me from my mother's womb. My praise is continually of thee. I have become a marvel to many, for thou art my strong refuge. In other words, people have watched me through the course of my life. I have endured these many difficulties, and yet my confidence is still in you. And people have watched that and kind of been amazed. It reminds me of Peter saying to be ready to give an answer, a defense to those who ask about the hope that is within us. Here David says the same thing. People marvel at me because you're my strong refuge no matter what happens. And my mouth is filled with your praise and with your glory all the day long. Do not cast me off in the time of old age. Do not forsake me when my strength fails. For my enemies have spoken against me, and those who watch for my life have consulted together, saying, God has forsaken him. Pursue and seize him, for there is no one to deliver him. And then David says, verse 12, O God, do not be far from me. O my God, hasten to my help. Let those who are adversaries of my soul be ashamed and consumed. And let them be covered with reproach and dishonor who seek to injure me. But as for me, here's that word hope again. I will hope. I will confidently expect you to protect me. As for me, I hope continually, and I will praise thee yet more and more. So as bad as the world is trying to shut me down, who have seen my old age, who have seen my son usurping my throne, those people who want to do with me, who are pursuing me, who want to seize me, the people who say there is no one to deliver him, this seems like an optimal time to take him out completely. David says, nevertheless, I'm going to hope in you. And I'm going to praise you all the more, despite what people may think. My mouth shall tell of your righteousness and of thy salvation all day long, for I do not know the sum of them. Verse 16, I will come with the mighty deeds of the Lord God. I will make mention of thy righteousness and thine alone. O God, thou hast taught me from my youth, and I still declare thy wondrous deeds. So you taught me this ever since I was a child, and now as an old man, I am still going to announce publicly, pronounce your praises 
tell people about your mighty works. I'm going to make mention of your righteousness, that you alone are righteous, because you have taught this to me through my whole life, and therefore now as an old man, I'm confident that you're not going to forsake me. Verse 17, O God, thou hast taught me from my youth, and I still declare thy wondrous deeds. And even when I am old and gray, O God, do not forsake me until I declare your strength to this generation and declare your power to all who are to come. Really, really interesting, because here is David saying, I've put in a long life. You've taught me this since I was young. Now I'm old and I'm in trouble again. But God, preserve me and save me for this reason, so that I can still talk about your righteousness and your goodness and your wondrous deeds to this generation, to the younger people, to the next group of people who are coming up. They need to hear the wisdom that you have planted in me through the things that you have taken me through. They need to learn about you and about your history and about your wonderful works. So preserve me even when I'm old and gray so that I declare your strength to this generation and declare your power to all who are to come. For your righteousness, O God, reaches to the heavens, and thou hast done great things, O God, who is like you. Thou who has shown me many troubles and distresses, very interesting, David understanding the sovereignty of God, can look back at his troubles and distresses and say, you're the God that took me through it. You're the God that showed it to me. You're the God who brought these troubles into my life. Remember that when David dealt with Nathan, when Nathan said to him, you are the man, that he was told that the sword was never going to leave his house. He knew the trouble was coming. He knew that God had pronounced the trouble. So now that the trouble had been on him for so much of his life, he could look back on it and say, God, who is absolutely sovereign, has shown me many troubles and many distresses. Kind of sounds like what we were talking about during the Theodicy series. It is God who has brought these troubles and distresses. And yet it's that same God who will revive me again and will bring me up again from the depths of the earth. So David's playing the long game here. David realizes even if his enemies get to him, even if they kill him, even if he goes to the grave, he has the promise from God that God is going to resurrect him again, revive him again, bring him back to life, and bring me up again from the depths of the earth. And even though I've been through all these troubles and problems and trials in this life, it has produced a tridentness and a hope in me where I am confident in you no matter what happens, even if death happens. I still know you're not going to abandon me. You're going to raise me up from the depths of the earth. So may you increase my greatness and turn to comfort me. I will also praise you with a harp. Even thy truth, O my God, to thee I will sing praises with the lyre, O thou Holy One of Israel. 
My lips will shout for joy when I sing praises to thee and my soul which thou hast redeemed. Isn't that interesting? Again, the juxtaposition between deliver me, God, (laughs) I'm in trouble again, juxtaposed right up against, but you're a wonderful God, and I will praise you, and I will tell the next generation about your mighty works and about your righteousness. Verse 24, my tongue will utter your righteousness all day long, for they are ashamed, for they are humiliated who seek my hurt. David had complete confidence that the same God who chose him out of the sheepfold, the same God who took him from his mother's womb, the same God who taught him from his youth was the same God who was going to preserve him in his old age and all the way through death, all the way to being raised up out of the depths of the earth again. David had that kind of confidence in God, and he learned that through the troubles that he went through. For as long as I've ever stood here, I don't mean that I've stood here nonstop for 22 years. Bring me meals while I'm here, and I'll be getting sleep occasionally. But for 22 years at this pulpit, I've been saying, I never learned anything really important when I was comfortable. You know, when you're comfortable, that's when it's all kumbaya and happiness and rainbows. Everything's good. But God throws trouble on you, and you learn stuff. You learn faith. You learn how to cast yourself utterly on him when you have nowhere else to go. And he knows that, and he will take you through those kind of troubles for the purpose of teaching you that sort of triedness, that sort of character, that sort of hope. And that's exactly what David went through in his lifetime. So whether Old Testament or whether New Testament, the testimony is the same. The God who brings peace and love and joy and happiness and grace is the same God who brings the troubles and the trials, the difficulties of this life. And he is the same God who will take you through those for his own purposes, for your own good, in order to exalt himself, to lift himself up ultimately to his own praise, his own glory, and his own honor, which is why at the end of this psalm, David ends up exactly there when he says, I will praise you with the harp. Even your truth, O my God, to thee I will sing praises with the lyre, O thou holy one of Israel. My lips will shout for joy when I sing praises to you, and my soul which thou hast redeemed. My tongue will utter thy righteousness all day long. That's what a lifetime of the ups and downs of living with God ultimately produces is praise and worship to God. And that demonstrates the purpose for it. And that takes us to Psalm 72. We're actually going to make it this evening. I feel good about this. Psalm 72 is a psalm of Solomon, or a psalm for Solomon. It's obviously written by David because the very last verse of the psalm says, the prayers of David, the son of Jesse, are ended. And so it is David who is writing this. It's at the end of his life. He's ready to hand over the kingdom to Solomon. And he is praying to God that he will preserve and take care of Solomon the same way that he has preserved and taken care of 
he himself. And so David says, give the king thy judgments, O God. Very interesting. He starts right out with, help my son Solomon to know how to judge rightly, to have the wisdom to be able to judge your people appropriately. And when Solomon had the opportunity, when God came to him and said, ask what you want and I'll give it to you, what did Solomon ask for? He wanted the wisdom in order to be able to judge the people correctly. So Solomon's prayer lined up with David's prayer here that King Solomon would have proper wisdom, proper judgments, and that your righteousness would be to the king's son so that he would rule according to the law of God, according to the dictates and the standards of God. That's the way the psalm starts, and it's obvious that that is then King David praying for his son Solomon And as we go through this psalm, he's going to start saying things about Solomon that just can't apply to Solomon. And so many commentators have pointed out that this psalm is prophetic in nature and that it is speaking of the time when David's ultimate son is going to sit on his throne, the time that we know by the nickname the millennium. It's describing the time of the full completion of the kingdom with David's greater son sitting on the throne. So he starts at Solomon, then he talks past Solomon, speaking of the Christ to come. Give the king thy judgments, O God, and thy righteousness to the king's son. May he judge the people in righteousness and judge thine afflicted with justice which is exactly what a king is supposed to do. I don't know if you remember our teaching through the Proverbs or Ecclesiastes where Solomon was writing about these very things and talking about the necessity of proper judgment and proper scales and not treating the poor any differently than the rich just because the poor couldn't be any benefit to you. David is praying that his son will be a proper judge that he will judge in righteousness, and that the afflicted, the poor, the people who can't put a little money in your palm, I pray that he will judge your afflicted with justice. Mm. Let the mountains bring peace to the people and the hills in righteousness. In other words, the hills and the mountains of God, the hills of Jerusalem and Israel, let them be the place where the people, the gathering of the people, finally have peace. So I think we have to ask a question. Uh, Since Solomon, to this very day, has there been peace right there in the Middle East, right there in Jerusalem? We'd, We'd have to say no. And so this cannot be talking simply about Solomon. It is predictive of a time of peace, unlike anything we've seen on the planet so far. Let your mountains bring peace to the people and the hills in righteousness. May he, your king, vindicate the afflicted of the people and save the children of the needy and crush the oppressor. Let them fear thee while the sun endures and as long as the moon 
throughout all generations. Now, is he talking about the judgment of Solomon throughout all generations until there's no more sun or moon? Well, obviously not. He's talking about that kingdom to come and the promise that is primary in the Davidic covenant, that his greater son is going to sit on the throne and rule the 12 tribes of Israel, but then all the nations of the earth are going to flow to Jerusalem May he come down like rain upon mown grass, like showers that water the earth. That is the language of refreshing. We don't live in a desert area when we want water. We just go over and open a tap somewhere. But if you're living in a desert region, you are dependent on rain. And when rain comes, that means there's going to be food. There's going to be a harvest. And it's a time of refreshing, and we're going to have water to drink. It's all good. And so here David likens this king to come like the rain that comes down out of the heavens and soaks and waters the land and also refreshes the people and also brings about the nourishment. May he come down like rain over the grass, like showers that water the earth in his days. May the righteous flourish and abundance of peace until the moon is no more. That can't be Solomon. We know that righteousness was not always Solomon's strong suit. We know that Solomon chased after many foreign women. And his mind was changed by them and he chased after foreign gods. And yet David's prophetic prayer is, in his days, may the righteous flourish. Jesus comes to the planet and teaches us to pray, your kingdom come and your will be done on earth the way it is in heaven. And then you get to the book of Revelation and you read about a time where holiness is on the bridles of the horses and on even the cups and saucers, the basic dishware. Everything is holiness to the Lord. So when Christ sets up his kingdom and establishes his reign of peace, then it will be said that in his days, the righteous are going to flourish, which they're not exactly doing right now. And in his days, there will be an abundance of peace because the prince of peace will be here on the planet until the moon is no more. May he also rule from sea to sea and from the river, that'd be the Euphrates, to the ends of the earth. So he's going to rule from the Middle East. He's going to rule from expanded Israel. And all the nations of the earth are going to be ruled by him from sea to sea. Has that ever happened in human history? And importantly, did Solomon ever accomplish it? No. We have to say no. And yet, is that kind of language said about Christ? Well, yes, absolutely. And so you can see why so many commentators... And I myself believe that this is prophetic. May he also rule from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. Let the nomads of the desert bow before him and let his enemies lick the dust. Let the kings of Tarshish, that's probably a reference to Spain, And of the islands, that would be the tin islands out beyond Spain, the furthest reaches that they could think of there in the Middle East, bring presents to him. And the kings of Sheba, 
which is modern-day Yemen, down in southern Arabia. The kings of Sheba and Seba offer their gifts. And let all the kings of the earth bow down before him. Why would all the kings bow down before him? Well, because he would be the king of kings. And when he comes back in the book of Revelation, he has a name on his thigh and on his vesture that no man knows. And it's written on him, king of kings, lord of lords. He's going to be the king over all other kings. And let all kings bow down before him and all nations serve him. That's perfectly in keeping with what I just described of the basic Davidic covenant. That Christ is going to sit on his throne in Jerusalem and all the Gentile nations are going to flow to him and bring their gifts to him. And the blessings of God are going to flow from Jerusalem out to the nations. Even David here agrees with that eschatological outlook that all the kings are going to bow down before him. All nations are going to serve him, for he will deliver the needy when he cries for help, and the afflicted also, and him who has no helper. He will have compassion on the poor and the needy, and the lives of the needy he will save. He will rescue their life from oppression and violence, and their blood will be precious in his sight. Turn over to 1 Kings 10 for just a moment, because this is an interesting little moment that's worth looking at. 1 Kings 10. I'm going to start reading at verse 1. This is talking about the queen of Sheba, which I mentioned is southern Arabia, modern-day Yemen. When the queen of Sheba heard about the fame of Solomon concerning the name of the Lord, she came to test him with difficult questions. So she came to Jerusalem with a very large retinue with camels carrying spices and very much gold and precious stones. And when she came to Solomon, she spoke with him about all that was in her heart. And Solomon answered all her questions Nothing was hidden from the king, which he did not explain to her. When the queen of Sheba perceived all the wisdom of Solomon and the house that he had built and the food of his table and the seating of his servants and the attendance of his waiters and their attire and his cupbearers and his stairway by which he went up to the house of the Lord, there was no more strength, no more spirit in her. And then she said to the king, it was a true report which I heard in my land about your words and about your wisdom. Nevertheless, I did not believe the reports until I came and my own eyes have seen it. And behold, the half was not told me. You exceed in wisdom and prosperity the report which I heard. How blessed are your men. How blessed are these your servants who stand before you continually and hear your wisdom. Blessed be Yahweh, your God, who delighted in you to set you on the throne of Israel because the Lord loved Israel forever. Even the queen of Sheba got that one right. Because the Lord loved Israel forever, therefore he made you king to do justice 
and righteousness. And she gave the king 120 talents of gold and a very great amount of spices and precious stones. And never again did such an abundance of spices come in as that which the queen of Sheba gave to King Solomon. Okay, go back to Psalm 72. Because this is an interesting moment in verse 15. It's hard to know whether David wrote this prior to the Queen of Sheba showing up or after the Queen of Sheba showing up. Probably he wrote this before the Queen of Sheba because Solomon is just taking the throne at this point. And look at what David wrote. So may he live, and may the gold of Sheba be given to him. The queen of Sheba brought huge amounts of gold and gifts of spices and precious stones, unlike anything anybody else brought. And here David predicted it in advance, that the gold of Sheba was going to end up being given to him. And let them pray for him continually. And let them bless him all day long. That's exactly what the Queen of Sheba did. Came and blessed him. May there be abundance of grain in the earth on top of the mountains. Its fruit will wave like the cedars of Lebanon. And may those from the city flourish like vegetation of the earth. Okay, so you can see the combination there where David is talking about the ultimate king, obviously predicting the millennial period and the kingdom of Christ that will never end until there is a moon no more. So he's talking about an eternal kingdom, but he's intermixing it in his writing about Solomon because he starts by talking about Solomon. He ends by talking about Solomon. And in the middle... Just like all the prophets do, so many times I've tried to point that out, the way that Isaiah will talk to, like, the king of Babylon, then talk right past him to Satan. It's that same prophetic idea here where David is talking about Solomon that talks right past him to the ultimate king to come and the ultimate kingdom that he knows God is going to establish through his lineage, through his family, on his throne, And then he starts talking about the Queen of Sheba and gold being brought to Solomon again and how there's going to be grain and a good harvest and plenty of people. But then in verse 17, may his name endure forever. May his name increase as long as the sun shines and let men Bless themselves by him and let all nations call him blessed. I don't think he's talking about Solomon there. I think he's talking about the king to come, the ultimate king. And even if this is meant to be a blessing for Solomon, even if he is talking in these grand terms that he would have a name, a reputation that would last forever. People would talk about him forever, which is kind of happening. We're still talking about Solomon. We know his name. We talk about his wisdom. But may his name increase as long as the sun shines. 
I'm not sure any man deserves that. But certainly Christ does. Let men bless themselves by him. That can't be by Solomon. Let all nations call him blessed. And then this final doxology, this final pronouncement of how blessed God is. Blessed be Yahweh, Elohim, the God of Israel, who alone works wonders. David's being very specific there. The God of Israel is the only God. That's why he starts out by saying, you'll have no other gods before me. There are no other gods. I'm the only God. David declares that oneness of God, that singularity of God, that separateness of God, that he is the one and only God. Blessed be the Lord God, the God of Israel, that God who is the only one who alone works these wonders. And blessed be his glorious name forever. I, I have a pretty high tolerance. I hear people say words that are probably not um, appropriate words for mixed company. Is that a good way to put it? Mm. I know the Bible says not to let unclean language fall out of your face. But I have a pretty high tolerance for it because, well, I grew up in rock and roll. And, and I'm, I'm with people. I remember one time James sitting back there when he was still in public school when he was just a little guy. He came home one day and used a bit of colorful language. And, uh, oh, Dad was happy to hear that. And I said, where, where did you hear that? And Megan said, Dad, all day, every day in school. That's the way the kids were talking. It's everywhere. It's pervasive. My point is. I hear that stuff, I just let it roll off me. But when I hear people take the Lord's name in vain, that offends me every single time. And it astounds me that on TV and in movies these days, there is this dramatic uptick, this increase of not only taking the Lord's name in vain, but combining Jesus Christ with all kinds of terrible epithets absolutely defaming him and defiling his holiness. And when I hear that, I, I'm just I'm shook to the core. I just think, boy, you don't want to answer for that. But you're going to stand before the God of ages, who is the very God who, in his commandments, said, don't take my name in vain. He holds his name as very high. He's very jealous for his name. His name is very separate. Which is why Jesus said, pray, our Father who art in heaven, hallowed is your name. It's righteous, it's separate from us, it's sinless, it's pure, it's powerful. Hallowed is your name. And so David, in extolling God, in speaking well of God, in blessing God, says, blessed be the Lord God, the God of Israel, who alone works wonders, and blessed... Be his glorious name, his reputation, what you know about him, his wonderful works, 
the way he cares for his people, his grace, his constancy, the way that you can count on him to protect you and preserve you. All of that is wrapped up in the faithfulness of God's name, his character, which is separate from us and not to be mishandled by us, rather to be reverenced by us because it is hallowed. Blessed be his glorious name forever. And if you ever get that thought planted in your head properly, that his name is a glorious name, that his name is a hallowed and separate name, you'll find it very difficult to take his name in vain. Which is proof positive yet again of how godless this world is becoming. How often now they take his name as an epithet. Blessed be his glorious name forever. I'm sorry, did I just get preachy for a second? I just, I read that verse and... and... Aren't you a preacher? It's what you're supposed oh, to that's right. That's what I do. Oh, okay. I feel better about that. And blessed be his glorious name forever and may the whole earth be filled with his glory. Has that happened yet? Nope. No. But it's coming. But it's coming. And the whole earth is going to be filled with the glory of Christ when he sits on his glorious throne and has his 12 apostles judging the 12 tribes of Israel. When he's sitting on David's throne ruling over the collective 12 tribes of Israel. When the nations of the earth are being blessed because of the blessings of God that are coming through Jerusalem out to the planet, when there is finally peace on the earth because the Prince of Peace is among us, then his name is going to be glorified on the earth and the whole earth will be filled with his glory. And David didn't just say, Amen, let it be so. The old Hebrew word, aman, that means you agree with God. David doesn't just say amen. He says amen and amen. It's going to be and it's going to be. And then the prayers of David, the son of Jesse, are ended. And that's the end of book two of the Psalms. Now, In books 3, 4, and 5, you will find some scattered psalms that are still written by David. But sequentially, David is saying this is the end of the prayers that he has written down, the end of what we call the psalms that are his prayers to God for his own perseverance. It's the end of his reign as king. He's turning over power to Solomon. He is an old man So that's how book two appropriately ends, the end of the prayers of David. Next week, we'll see. No promises, no predictions. I'm waiting for God to slap me upside the head and tell me what we're doing next week. Thank you for listening to this week's Salvation by Grace midweek message. We encourage you to visit our website at salvationbygrace.org for books, Q&As, and our ever-expanding archive of audio sermons. And we invite you to join us next time when we gather around the Word and study the sovereign grace of God.